When I consider the parts of our Unitarian Universalist living tradition which have reflected the most on requiem themes like rest eternal and light perpetual, it is the Universalist half of our heritage. There's an old joke about the two halves of our history that came together in 1961. It's that the Universalists think that God is too good to damn anyone forever and that the Unitarians think that they are too good to possibly be damned forever. <laughs> Faure, though I do not, though was not a universalist, I think he was clearly at least a little bit universalist curious. And in the same way that Faure chose to compose a requiem, for the most part with a gentle tone, especially compared to many requiems that had come before, and to intentionally exclude most traditional references to the Day of Judgment. You'll hear a little of that later. Um, But that seems to be quite um, resonant with this important part of the universalist half of our heritage that has evolved from this emphasis on universal salvation for all in the next world to loving the hell out of this world. And to appreciate that trajectory, it can help to briefly turn back the clock to a century before Faure's Requiem, when a much more conservative theology was ascendant, especially in this country, uh, encapsulated perhaps most famously by Jonathan Edwards' 1741 sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some of you may have read that uh, in school. It's the one where the spider is being dangled over the pits of fire. And in the spirit of the French composer Faure, let us look to Voltaire, another Frenchman, uh, to better understand Edwards. Voltaire wrote, if there is any truth in the teaching that God created humankind in God's own image, it is clear to me that humans wasted no time in returning the favor and creating God in their image. Indeed, I've come to see that most fire and brimstone sermons are much less about sinners in the hands of an angry God and much more about God in the hands of angry sinners. It was in that context in which John Murray, the father of American universalism, arrived in the North American colonies from England in 1770, six years before the American War for Independence. It's been said that the essence of his message was, give people not hell, but hope and courage. Do not push them deeper into a theological despair, but preach kindness and everlasting love. Along those lines, one of the roots of our contemporary practice of holding child dedications is that back in the late 1700s, Murray opposed the practice of baptism, saying that if there is no concern about washing a baby clean of original sin to avoid hell, then a child dedication is a fully appropriate celebration for the hope and joy that new community, that religious communities find in each new life. Notably, when controversy stirred about Reverend Murray's service as a chaplain in George Washington's Continental Army, given Murray's universalist theology that some considered a heresy, to which we would say, not that there's anything wrong with that, uh, General Washington himself supported Murray's appointment in the face of much criticism. I see a lot of universalist hope in Faure's choice of lyrics, such as, O free the soul of, the, of thy faithful departed from eternal torment. Free the souls of thy faithful departed from out of the lion's jaw. We pray this day for all souls departed.
Although there is much more to say about John Murray, the founder of universalism in America, allow me to shift for now to Hosea Ballou, who emerged as the leader of the second generation of universalists. My favorite story about Ballou is when a conservative skeptic um, approached him about worried that universalism would lead to the moral corruption of society. He said, Brother Ballou, if I were a universalist and feared not the fires of hell, I would hit you over the head, I would steal your horse and saddle and ride away, and I'd still go to heaven. And Hosea Ballou looked over at him and said, Brother... If you were a universalist, that idea would never occur to you. (laughs) In that spirit, this next piece is about divine holiness, which literally means set-apartness. And for our universalist forebears, divine set-apartness, the divine difference, was commensurate with an abundance of divine love, not merely for an elite chosen few, but love for all. We'll hear a brief segment a few movements from now that reference the Dies Irae, the divine wrath, but it's, it's this next spot that you traditionally hear quite an extended piece on that in which Fare chose to include instead only the final couplet, the, the Pie Yesu, which emphasizes divine mercy. This choice is resonant with the trajectory of universalism in the wake of Murray's and Ballou's leadership. Around 1896, only a few years after Faure's Requiem premiered, a spokesperson for the Universalists challenged our theological forebears to live more fully into our potential, saying, You Universalists, you've squatted on the biggest word in the English language, and now the world is becoming more globalized, it's beginning to want that big word, and you Universalists must either improve the property or get off the premises. Along those lines, in 1943, two two decades after Faure's death, the general superintendent of the Universalists said this at the Universalist General Assembly. Universalism cannot be limited either to Protestantism or to Christianity, not without denying its very name. Ours is a world fellowship and not a Christian sect. For as long as universalism is universalism and not partialism, the fellowship bearing its name must succeed in making unmistakably clear that all are welcome. 
theist and humanist, Unitarian and Trinitarian, colored and colored less. He's concluded a circumscribed universalism is unthinkable. Here you see a clarity emerging that universalism requires extending not wrath but mercy, and mercy not only to those like you or even to those you like, but to all. In 1924, Faure's Requiem in its full orchestral version was performed at Faure's own funeral. He was 79 years old at his death. And although the predominantly gentle tone of Faure's Requiem, again, especially in contrasted with previous Requiems, has led it to be described as a lullaby of death, they meant that as a compliment, uh, there uh, nonetheless remains the haunting reminder in a Requiem that none of us are getting out of this life alive. We UUs have garnered significant praise for our curriculum titled Our Whole Lives, which is considered a gold standard in lifespan sexuality education. And for the most part, we are doing a good and intentional job of equipping our children and young adults to um, confront the facts of life. But the facts of life also must ultimately include the facts of death. As the actuarial tables tell us, the death rate remains 100%. And regarding the facts of death, it turns out there's an app for that. It's called We Croak. It's a little frog icon. For the low price of 99 cents, this app will send you five daily reminders at randomized times to stop and think about death. And it's not like a good idea. Maybe they should pay you 99 cents. Uh, It's based on the Bhutanese saying that to be a happy person, one must contemplate death five times a day. The app's online description says the We Croak invitations come at randomized times and at any moment, just like death. 
And when they come, you can open the app for a quote from a, about death from a poet, a philosopher, or a notable thinker, and you're encouraged to take a moment for um, conscious breathing, for meditation. Um, they say that we find the regular practice of contemplating our mortality helps spur needed change to accept what uh, accept what we must and to let go of things that don't matter and to honor the things that really do. As a meme circulating on social media says, God grant me the serenity to accept the people I cannot change. <laughs> the courage to change the one I can. And the wisdom to know it's me. So I have not purchased the We Croak app, but I can imagine that it could regularly help put life in perspective. You're going through your day, you have a minor conflict that you're majorly obsessing about. Has that ever happened to any of you? And suddenly a reminder pops up on your phone and says, don't forget, you're going to die. (laughs) And it might be a little perspective to stop so majorly emphasizing something that's actually quite minor or shift your attention to what's really important. You might read a quote like, no one on his deathbed has ever said, I wish I spent more time on my business, Paul Songus. Or, death is only the end if you think the story is about you. Welcome to Night Vale. Or in the words of the inimitable Sirio Pharrell, there is only one God and his name is death. And there is only one thing we say to death. Does anybody know? No, right. That's a good one. What we say to death is not today. As one journalist wrote about until the day that we do, right? As one journalist wrote about his experience using the We Croak app for about six weeks, he said, Trembling with nerves before giving a talk to a group of strangers, I got a ping in my pocket that said, Don't forget, you're going to die. And I thought, what's a little public speaking next to the terrifying finality of my inevitable demise? So I got up and gave that talk. Soon after, I was at a friend's wedding, and I was sulking about an impending deadline, and why am I at this wedding, and I should be working. And again, Wee Croak reminded me, don't forget, you're going to die. So I loosened up, I had another glass of champagne, and I opted in to enjoying myself at that wedding. With each day, the app began to sound a little bit less like this Hobbesian warning that life is short and more an Oprah-esque affirmation that life is short. So one takeaway from a requiem can be to savor life, to lean in, and to don't miss out because you're still here for now. Inevitably, though, the end is coming for us all, which can also be a reminder that part of living well is the practice of dying well, to the extent we can control that. Along these lines, I was saddened and frustrated to learn recently that the Maryland end-of-life action option, again, failed to pass out of the Senate. But this year, the bill advanced much further than ever before. Death with Dignity advocates, including many Unitarian Universalists, have been working on this bill for years, and this is the first time it at least got out of committee and then passed one of the houses, even if there uh, did not pass both, so there remains much hope for the future in future legislative sessions. For now, to speak about what um, more often remains within our control, if you haven't, if I could tell you one book to read today, it would be Atul Gawande's short but profound book called Being Mortal. How many of you have read 
read that, so quite a few hands. Um, I highly recommend it for really getting clear about what quality of life means for you and those you love, which is not the same for everyone. It's a really powerful book on that. In the meantime, as I move toward my conclusion, I'll share with you some of the most moving and meaningful advice on the end of life that I've ever received. It's from a rabbi who emphasizes the importance of reflecting as someone nears the end of life or as you near the end of life on whether you or others around you feel the need to say any variation on the following four phrases in the time remaining. I forgive you. Do you forgive me? Thank you. And I love you. As we listen to the next movement of Fares Requiem, I invite you to notice if one or more of those phrases feels particularly resonant with you in this season of your life. Amidst this morning's reminder that none of us knows how much time we have left, is there someone that you need to have a conversation with that involves one or more of those sentiments? I forgive you. Do you forgive me? Thank you. And I love you. Reflecting on the end also raises the question of what, if anything, happens after the end finally comes. Uh, always think of, uh, for that question, I think the, our Unitarian and Transcendentalist forebear, Henry David Thoreau, um, speaks for many UUs, not all, when, when asked on his deathbed, Henry, you know, what do you think is going to happen after you die? And, he, and Thoreau said, I don't know but I'm trying to take it just one world at a time. (laughs) In that same spirit here in the 21st century, I'm also reminded that one of the truly great spiritual teachers and peace activists of our age, Thich Nhat Hanh, is nearing the end of his life. He's left um, Plum Village in France and has returned to his native country of Vietnam for the uh, what presumably is his final days. And in reading some about that, it's been interesting to see he's been speaking some about how he spent decades in this Buddhist practice of letting go and how that's informing his nearing the end and being ready and having practiced that letting go when it is time. But with that, it's been interesting to see some of his closest students say, we're both learning from that practice of letting go, watching him letting go, shuffling off this mortal coil, um, letting go of you know our teacher, but also speaking about a profound practice of letting in of what they want to let into themselves of this spiritual teacher that's meant so much to them and to others. So to me, both letting go and letting in are quite profound practices for the end. 
And so again, we never know how much time we have, so I invite you to consider as we prepare to go from this place and in the week to come, being intentional about what is within your control, to continue your journey to the extent you can with love, to, to choose justice, to choose peace. As you go into the world, whatever taste or touch you've had in this time and place of hope, of love, of peace or joy or connection, that goes with you out into the world. We're different for having spent this time together. May you live boldly. May you live with thanksgiving. a footnote for this presentation. Since January, Deb has worked with the choir to prepare it for the presentation with the Frederick Symphony Orchestra, and she continued that work to get this uh, choir ready for you today. This has been the first time she has ever conducted a major choral work, and we love her for it. <laughs> 